Um, good morning. You guys can be seated. Uh, my name is Joshua. I am the pastor at Ethos Hillsboro Village, and uh, so thankful you guys are here. Um, if you are new here at all, uh, you're, you're joining us in the middle of our series in Philippians. I went and counted the sermons, and this is our 11th sermon out of Philippians, so we've been here for a minute, um, and uh, no end in sight. <laughs> um, oh, happy Independence Day, or is it? You know, I never know. If you're uncomfortable with that kind of response when I say a joke, when it's like quiet and like two people laugh, this is gonna be an uncomfortable next 40 minutes for you, okay? Um, Not 40, 28, maybe 40. Anyway, all right. Um, Hey, I wanna start on a funny note, which is over, and now a serious note, um, which is actually kind of serious. Last week, um, someone came to Hillsborough Village for their first time. They were newer to the city, and um, we had, they left their keys in their car and left it unlocked, and it was stolen. We have a policeman on site. We reported it immediately, and the car was found a few days later. So I wanted to bring relief as quickly as I could to that scary news. Um, but this is reality. Has anyone had their car rummaged through before in Nashville? Anybody? Yes, me too. Yes, They're, well, same family, but still. Yes, several hands here. Uh, it happens all the time. Uh, but, uh, but I remember uh, a few years ago, uh, living, on Antioch, uh, living on Antioch Pike. I don't live there anymore, but that's the street name. And um, I lock my door every night. And there was one night where I didn't lock my door and someone had went through my car. And I went, does that mean that every single night, you know, like the one time in years that I leave my car unlocked, I go through and stuff is thrown all over my car, not one thing taken because I didn't have no money in there. You know what I'm saying? It's me. Like what's, and so I don't know what that joke was. I I guess I don't keep money in my car. And, but it's just kind of this sobering reality, you know, where it's like, man, we have security on site. Um, Hopefully, everyone else's car was locked, but um, if someone happens to leave their car unlocked, there's just this risk, and it's unfortunate that we shouldn't have to be having this dialogue, like someone leaves their car unlocked and their keys in their car. The consequence should not be their car was stolen, um, but that's what happened, and so I, I did feel like I needed to tell you guys, one, that it happened, and two, just like a word to you, um, if you're newer to Nashville life, this is a, a big city, and um, things happen, and so be sure to lock your cars, be careful. Um, we have a police on site. We are concerned for your safety. That is my announcement. Does that make sense? You guys all right? All right. Um, I think we're good, but uh, anyway, brave faces. So we've been in Philippians. This is our 11th week. The series title is To Live as Christ, um, in honor of when Paul says, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And um, today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. And uh, in light of just this church unity that we see Paul being so urgent about. Every week we, we ask someone in the church family to read the scripture out loud. Um, so would someone mind reading Philippians chapter two, verses 16 through 18 over us, and then we'll, we'll get going on this passage. So Philippians two, 16 through 18. Who's gonna read out loud for us? Yeah, go for it. Holding fast to the word of God, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not dwell in vain or labor even if I only be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of her faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Thanks, brother. Yeah, so if you're taking notes, the sermon title today, Poured Out. Poured Out. 
And um, I wanna start by giving two prefaces. I don't have like a, a funny story to grab your attention, so forgive me, but I do have two prefaces, and they're amazing. So the first preface is today there's gonna be a lot of probably like foreign language, foreign concepts, um, maybe some language that you're like vaguely familiar with, and, um, and, and even some language that I'm vaguely familiar with. And anyone more familiar with it will probably hear this teaching and go, oh, you left a lot on the table and probably shouldn't have said that, and that's fine. Uh, we'll figure it out. We'll revise it later. But here's where I wanna just give you the onus. Like, just take the big picture today. If there's any part where you're like, oh, I don't really understand what that part meant or that small detail was, like, it's okay. I'm here. Luke Lowe's, like, my, my biblical scholar is here. If you have any questions around like different sacrifices or offerings, like I can't promise you I'll know every answer, but I can promise you we can Bible study together and we can dig deeper. Um, my hope though is that you, you hear and feel the big picture of this because um, there's some beautiful stuff that Paul's gonna say and um, I don't think it'll be hard for you to get the big picture, okay? So there's your first preface. And if you are wanting to explore a book that has a lot of this type of imagery and language, try the book of Hebrews because it's chock full of it. All right. Preface number two, we're gonna get another insight into Paul the poet. So if you remember in Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11, we talked about how that's perhaps the first Christian hymn ever written. And Paul includes that in this passage. And I was reminded by a fellow pastor, Gentry Wigington this week, that, that Paul is a Hebrew man. He's a Pharisee, that he grew up a Hebrew scholar. Like the words of the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament were just like seared onto his heart from a young age. And I don't know if you know this, but one third of the Hebrew Bible is poetry. And the, uh, the first form of literature in the Hebrew language was poetry. So before we got uh, historical narrative or discourse, there was poetry. So shout out to all my Enneagram fours, all my Nashville artists working on that EP that's for sure gonna make it, you know? Like we're joining Paul who also thinks and conveys ideas through the power of like picture and imagery. And Paul's gonna reach back into some Old Testament imagery to convey some really powerful stuff, okay? Um, and so forgive me, a Gentile, who's gonna try to like mine the beauty of Hebrew thought, okay? I, I can't promise it's gonna be perfect. So let's start here, verses 16 through 18. We're gonna, we're gonna pause in verse 16 briefly. For Paul, this ministry, the Philippian church, this is personal. He says, you know, hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Last week, when we talked about how Paul says, hey, don't grumble or dispute. If you were here last week, I said, hey, you're gonna miss the potency of Paul's instruction not to grumble or dispute if you don't fully accept there was so much that they could have grumbled or disputed about like the hardship of their life, the threat of imprisonment, social isolation, death, Paul's writing from prison. Like I, I said last week, if you don't understand there was plenty to grumble or dispute about, you're gonna miss the weight of him saying, do not grumble or dispute, right? That's what makes it so weighty. Same sentiment this week. When Paul says that on the day of Christ, I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain, you'll miss the potency of this if you don't realize the time, the effort, the intensity, the sacrifice, the courage it took for Paul to live the life he's living. In prison, he pens these words, like the mental effort 
of giving his life to ministry and church planning and making disciples in a culture that had never heard the name of Jesus. The physical toll of this, the emotional toll, the spiritual toll. Like I started thinking about Paul. He made this decision to not get married. Like, I don't think he slipped and fell into singleness and was like, you know, now that I think of it, I don't have a wife, you know? He chose it. He beholds the glory of Jesus and goes, this is so all-consuming and so important that only Jesus, like that, that is my relationship. Like that's the relationship of my priority. And even in 1 Corinthians, he encourages all of us to be single. And we're all like, hey, you know, skip that. You know, <laughs> but he's like, if it were up to me, all of us would be single. Like, come on, we, got, we have ministry to do. Like this is, it's got his whole allegiance, right? Like his whole life to Christ. Like he decided against settling down in a town with some of his closest friends. Maybe picking up a hobby like fishing, you know? Like he didn't sail off into the sunset with his latter years, right? Like Paul beheld the Lord on that amazing road to Damascus story and the glory of Jesus was so all-encompassing, it like transports Paul to a completely different worldview. And he's given his everything to Jesus, but specifically he's giving his everything to people like the Philippian church. And I love Paul's honesty here. He doesn't do the white lie strategy or commonly the Christian strategy of, oh, it's all good all the while leaving this burden in his chest buried underneath and doesn't really tell anybody about it. He goes like, no, hey, church family, seriously. Jesus already told me I'm gonna die for this, okay? <laughs> like, for sure I'm dying for this. And, and my whole reason for like breathing and existing is to help you know God. Please, it actually really matters to me personally. I've got personal investment into this. Please listen to what I've said. Please receive the life and the truth and the vision of Jesus deep within your heart. Please let it get into the deepest parts of who you are and shape everything about your existence because I'm gonna stand before Jesus and I really don't wanna stand there alone. I'm not giving my life and dying for the faith that I'd stand before Christ alone. I wanna stand before Christ alongside my brothers and sisters from Philippi that gave just as much as I did. Please, I wanna be proud. I want you to be proud. When I think through that lens, I go, oh, okay. So that on the day of Christ, I will be proud that I did not labor in vain. And he's like, I don't want to labor in vain. You're the, you're the select people I've chosen to like pour my life out into. So I thought that was a really powerful image. And then he gets into where we're going to spend a lot of our time today. Hey, so good to see you. Um, all right, so we're going to talk about two types of offerings that Paul brings to mind here, okay? A drink offering and a sacrificial offering. Here we go, you guys ready? Lean in, take notes, fact check me. Um, so Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Two offerings, one by Paul, the drink offering, his life, okay, being poured out. One by the Philippians, their sacrificial offering, which is their faith, their faith is their sacrifice. And we're gonna dig into both. So, did you, see, did you see the color-coded slide already? I color-coded it this morning. 
Probably didn't make much of a difference, did it? (laughs) All right, let's talk about the drink offering. In the Old Testament, a drink offering was a libation, like, like wine, that would have always been paired with either a burnt offering, like a bull, a goat, a ram, a lamb, often to like atone for sin when you're offering those kind of animals, or a grain offering, bread, okay? These items would be placed on an altar and in essence, given to the Lord, okay? It was a way of offering your first fruits unto God and there were different purposes for different offerings and different sacrifices. Most notably, we're probably vaguely familiar with sacrifices that atone for sin and you're like, no, I'm not. I'm like, no, you actually kind of are. If you've ever heard Christ like called like the ultimate sacrifice, the, the lamb that takes away, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that's sacrifice language, like a holy, unblemished sacrifice that takes away your sin. This is bringing back Old Testament imagery of burnt offerings, an innocent, an innocent animal having its blood shed on an altar to atone for sin. But let's focus on the drink offering. Picture a hen of wine. If you've never heard of a hen of wine, me neither. I found it in my studies. So let's just picture for our sake, like a gallon of wine or a cup of wine or something being poured out onto an altar. A drink offering was only offered on specific occasions. After the Lord had defeated the enemies of Israel, of his people, and given his people a restful dwelling in the land, only after that was it time to offer a drink offering. Only after God had completed teaching his people a lesson or delivering them into a place of victory. So for example, he instructs Israel to offer a drink offering while they're in 40 years in the wilderness. And he goes, but don't offer it until you've entered the promised land. Okay? So it was a symbol of deliverance. And it was called like a sabbatical offering. So to make that simple, like an offering that was like a Sabbath offering. If you think about In the Genesis, the creation story, on the seventh day, God rested, right? A sabbatical offering, from what I can gather, like out of Leviticus 23, was offered the day after Sabbath, the day of rest. So it was symbolic of deliverance, of victory, and of rest. Now, a key detail, a grain offering like bread or a blood sacrifice or a burnt offering, like those animals I listed earlier, they would also be eaten by the priest and the worshiper. So you'd offer some of it to God and eat some of it yourself, right? The drink offering was poured out entirely unto the Lord, all the way, so nothing left, okay? What this symbolized was that God was entering into a period of rest after delivering his people, but the people could not fully enter into that rest themselves. What it meant was God's delivered you into the land, but there is still dominion and work and labor to be done. Again, think about the Genesis story, Adam and Eve, consequence of sin. You've got to work and toil in the land. I've provided the land, it's your land, but you've got to cultivate the land. Does that make sense? So there's like this pairing of like, oh, it's a gift, you've been delivered, but there's work to be done, okay. So with the drink offering, God enters rest, the people celebrate the victory, and they understand there's work to be done. Last thing, on a simple note, When Paul says, I'm a drink offering being poured out, he certainly wants you to picture like this wine being poured out on an altar is the span of his life. The beginning of his life all the way to the end. And he's going, every ounce of my life is being poured out for the name, the glory, 
of Jesus and the good of this world. My life is as that wine being completely emptied out for the sake of Christ. A powerful image. Okay, moving to the sacrificial offering of the Philippian church. We good? Ready to switch? Here we go. Okay. So in this imagery, the Philippian church is like a priest bringing a grain or a burnt offering. And the sacrifice they're offering is their faith. The NASB translates it, the sacrifice and service of your faith. Meaning your faith has hands and feet. It's not just this like, I keep, I mean, I believe in God, but I kind of keep my religion to myself. Like it's a private matter. For the Philippian church, they were with their hands and feet making much of Christ, with their lips testifying to who Jesus is. And for the Philippian church, make no mistake, this was a sacrifice. The cross had not yet been turned into a gold necklace that in some cases has really no meaning at all. Like the cross was the threat. We've talked about this for several weeks. I won't go down this path, but there was the threat, social isolation, prison, death. So it was a sacrifice to have faith in Jesus. Now, okay, gear up. That's me gearing up. That's the stick shift sound. That's not a stick shift sound. In the, in the Old Testament, a drink offering was not complete without a grain offering or a burnt offering. A drink offering was not poured out by itself. It was always accompanied, okay? So to be a complete and holy sacrifice unto the Lord, a drink offering had to have a grain or burnt offering with it. Paul is saying, I'm not complete without you and you're not complete without me. Together, together we make an acceptable, holy, and pleasing sacrifice. Without you, I'm incomplete. Without me, you're incomplete. Together, we present ourselves holy before the Lord, a pleasing sacrifice before a perfect God. This is that, it brings to mind that imagery where he says a few verses earlier in chapter one, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Like we gotta work together. We gotta make this happen together. We don't play this in isolation. Christianity, faith in Jesus, following Jesus, being that city on a hill of light in the dark is not a solo endeavor. Only together can this be done. Philippian church, join me. I'm here at the altar. Meet me at the altar. This beautiful picture of completeness. Together, we're the sacrifice that recognizes God's deliverance, victory, rest. Okay, cool, right? So now we're gonna join a completely different picture. So if you're lost, there's more. (laughs) We're gonna go to the Last Supper. Jesus with his 12 disciples. We're gonna have a little fun here, okay? Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. Next slide. Boom. So there's the passage. I'm gonna read it to you real quick. So you guys know we take communion, those little plastic cups with the, the little bread and little juice. That, this is where this all starts, okay? Jesus instituting communion for his church. All right, he says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There is a ton happening here. And I'm gonna share what was going on in my heart, what was percolating in me as I read this. So Jesus says, this is my body. His body like the bread. It brings to mind the grain offering, the bread offered before the Lord. His body broken as an innocent animal shedding its blood for the atonement of sin. That's Jesus' body being broken to atone for our sins. He passes around the cup. He says, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So think about Paul. I mean, as a drink offering being poured out. I mean, he stole this from Jesus, like obviously. Jesus, take the wine. This is my blood being shed, poured out. Literally my physical life being poured out on the cross for your sake. And I thought about how we have the bread, the grain offering, the cup, the blood, that's, that's the burnt offering. And then I had my own little experience. Oh, but the cup of wine that's poured out, offered only to God, it's the one that completes the sacrifice. The drink offering is what symbolizes the rest that's being offered to the people that call Jesus Lord. Your soul may enter eternal rest through this cup. It's not to be poured out, it's to be received. What does Jesus do? He passes it around. So we know, this is why we're here and we're not going, oh, I gotta bring some bread and a, and a, and a calf and, and, and a cup of wine. I gotta, like, I gotta do a whole, I gotta find an altar somewhere. No, we come and we receive communion. We receive this complete sacrifice. We receive the grain offering. We receive the blood offering. We receive the drink offering. And Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. To live is Christ. What's, what's Paul always talking about? The day of Christ. It's always on his mind when we see him face to face. And Jesus says, when my Father comes back, when we set all things right, that's the next time you'll see me drinking wine and you'll drink it with me. In the Old Testament, we poured out wine to symbolize God enters rest fully, us, not quite yet. There's work to be done, but there will be a day where I come back, make all things right, and we're drinking wine together because you have fully entered into rest. Thanks be to Jesus. The imagery that's happening here. No, you drink it. Like, you take it. Partake of it. And as you do, remember what's being done. So much wonder, so much beauty. When Jesus says, it is finished, you know, it's finished. No more sacrificial system. It's done. Back to Philippians. But remember, the drink offering symbolizes God enters rest, but there's work to be done. And when Jesus says, we're all gonna drink wine, that's the second coming. So here we are in the in-between. You might've heard it called like the almost not yet. We're almost there, but not quite yet. So until then, we take Paul's image. Being poured out as a drink offering is this reminder. There is work to be done. We are left to toil for the glory of Jesus. To live is Christ. To live is to work for the sake of Jesus. Our lives are as cups of wine being poured out for the glory of Jesus. 
We are invited by Paul to join him in being an offering. And to die is gain, because to die is to enter into the rest, the Sabbath rest, the promised land of eternity in complete unity with our Heavenly Father. So my invitation for us out of this passage, threefold, to sacrifice, to labor, and to rejoice. The first invitation is to sacrifice, because here's the truth. We are all cups of wine pouring out our lives on an altar. That is not up for debate. What's up for debate is who or what is the altar to? Right now, you are sacrificing your time, your energy, your priorities, your focus, your motivations, your 10-year goals. Like You are going, I'm gonna sacrifice my life on the altar of something, someone. And I think this conversation begs the question, who is the altar to? To who or what are you sacrificing your time, your focus, your money, your resources, your life? And for Paul, the answer is easy. I will pour out the wine of my life for the one who poured out the wine of his life for my sake. He's inviting us to see ourselves as genuine, pure and holy offerings presented to the Lord. Secondly, there's this invitation to labor. The drink offering is a reminder. God has fulfilled his promise. He has. And one day we will fully enter rest. But until then, it brings to mind this deli- that, that while we've been delivered, there is work to be done. And I think I just wanna speak an obvious word, but maybe it doesn't feel so obvious anymore. Laboring is not legalism. Laboring is understanding there's work to be done, that we don't trip and fall into selfless, caring, Jesus-glorifying people, that it takes effort, and that's okay. Good things take our work. And until we fully enter, we are to be laborers. Laborers is not a bad word. We wanna be laborers. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Implied, Jesus is looking for laborers. Implied, Jesus is the chief, capital L, laborer. Jesus worked hard that we would know his glory and his love. It takes work to be selfless, work to be patient, work to be compassionate. It takes work to slow down. It takes work to go sit alone and quiet in the presence of God. If you don't know that, go try it. It's hard. It takes work to like move past the self-centered, narcissistic air we breathe in today's world and instead choose to see others and see their story and intercede on their behalf. This is work. And instead of hearing the word labor and going, legalism, we don't earn it. No, no, it's with the privilege we go, God, what's the assignment? I think we gotta get rid of the stigma that it's like always gotta be like, just a little touch of euphoria when we do something for the Lord. That's not how work works. (laughs) And if it works that way, praise be to God. He threw a Holy Spirit sprinkled cherry on top bonus on our soul. I'm so glad that that was a euphoric moment when you served your neighbor, but it doesn't have to be. Feelings not required to labor for Christ. If Christ is who he says he is, I don't have to feel good when I work for Christ. It's worth it. 
I wasn't planning on saying that. Hold on. Yeah, I just, I think there's probably, like we're in this series and I feel like the, the, the big thrust of the series and my prayers for HV specifically is like, God, we wanna be co-ministers, co-laborers. We do wanna strive side by side together. It is okay to go, hey, let's work a little bit. Let's dig into, let's go on a, a two minute tangent. I'm watching, okay? What is striving? When Paul says strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, what is striving? Striving is going a little bit, ba- a little bit past your comfort level. A little bit past, oh, this feels nice. I don't like lift weights, bro, but this is the image that comes to my head. Five reps, oh, easy, we'll do six. Well, you know, you know, hold on. Hey, help, help, seriously, help. I'm gonna, I, I might die, right? Like, striving. The five reps were not striving. Six, you started striving. And I go, man, how often do you look at your friends that call Jesus Lord and you feel like we really strive side by side for the gospel? And I go like, I think for the most part, we do whatever we can that we feel pretty comfortable in the gospel. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I, like, what, would it, what would this church look like if, if for the most part, we shared this in common, we strive. We're willing to be a little uncomfortable for the sake of Christ. And I think the like legalism that we're trying to climb out of has like somehow poisoned our understanding of labor and work. You know? There's like this pressure of it feeling good. Tangent over. Let's be laborers. Let's figure it out. We don't gotta know exactly how it's supposed to work but we know it's gonna be work. So let's work and then figure out how to navigate all of our feelings as we work. And let's just process together, safe space, you know? All right, number three, rejoice. Paul says, I am glad and rejoice. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice. I've heard it said you shouldn't ever use should language. It's shaming. So forgive Paul for saying, if you're not rejoicing in your current like spiritual walk with Jesus, you should be. You need to rejoice. Like, if you're not rejoicing in your service to Christ, what needs to change in your view of God, view of self, view of the world, so that you can rejoice? Because I promise you, all the math adds up. If you are sacrificing and laboring, two plus two is four, rejoice. It's easy. Paul's like, man, I'm not like in this like weird placebo. I have beheld the glory of Christ and consequently am sacrificing and laboring for Christ. Christ. (laughs) I've got a baby now, baby talk. There's more, a dad plug. (laughs) All right. For Paul, simple math, two plus two, four. To labor and sacrifice after beholding the glory of God is simple math. And to rejoice while doing it is simple math. He goes like, I have seen Christ (laughs) and I'm gonna see him again. I have beheld the Christ that gave it all for me. I have beheld the Christ who was good on his words. Anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. I have found it. I rejoice and you should too. You found it. When Paul instructs, be glad and rejoice, he's not a loser helping other losers cope 
He has found the sole purpose of existence to know God's love, to receive God's love, to reciprocate God's love to God and to the world around you. And so he knows with full confidence, man, me and Jesus, we're in real, we really dialogue. I'm really talking with Holy Spirit and I'm really gonna see him again. All this is really worth it and really temporary. So rejoice. And he's coaching the church. He's being a good spiritual father here. Hey, if in your journey with Jesus and your sacrifice for God and in your labor for the Lord, there's no rejoicing, probably Luke 5, 16, withdraw to a place of solitude and sort that out with God. God, I've been laboring and I'm gonna be honest, all I'm drinking is a bitter cup. Will you show me like, What has to shift in my heart to understand like the glory and the joy available in this labor? The joy available in laying my life down for you. Because my math is wrong. Something's up in here. And so if I need to confess some selfishness or or some greed or some impatience, like just help me work it out. Because according to Paul and according to Jesus, if I give my life to you, like I gain it. So anyway, I'm tangenting again. We're gonna go to communion because that was the point. I was trying to get to communion quicker than normal to help you process on your own. I'm trying to like not overwork our circle up and talk muscles. So since we've already circled up and prayed together, we're gonna do communion individually. (sighs) And I wanna invite you to ponder one, two, or all three of these words, but let's think about sacrifice. And if the Holy Spirit's already got your attention and he's got you thinking about something, tune me out and just start journaling and praying because that's really the point. But if you need some guidance, like how do I take what Josh has said and and actually process it, here's some guidance. Sacrifice, consider your life. Who or what receives most of your time, energy, effort, and motivation? Who is the primary recipient, recipient of your life being poured out? Don't live in shame, just call it out, name it. And then just sit with God. Okay, God, what do I do with that? Like if my answer is Leona, my fresh baby girl, all right, well, I, gotta, I, gotta, I need to sit with that. Lord, hey, you're number one still. Like, will you help me navigate? Being a husband, being a father, but it's still you, you alone, right? So let's just be honest here. Labor, how are you currently laboring for the gospel? Where is the harvest plentiful in your life? When Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, he's promising you in your life the harvest is plentiful. And I think sometimes when evangelism's hard, it's because we need more courage and we just need to do it. And sometimes it's hard because you keep throwing seeds on hard soil instead of exploring with God, God, where's the soil soft? Because I promise you, there are people in your vicinity that will warmly welcome the news of Christ. We just gotta go find them. I think that's what he's getting at here. Hey, the harvest is plentiful, so go preach it. And when people don't receive you, it wasn't plentiful there. Doesn't mean it's not plentiful, it just means you need to go pre- keep preaching it somewhere else. But I promise you, there are people in this city desperate, desperate to hear God is real. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He loves you more than you can know and you can have a forever relationship with him right now. I promise you this is true. So I wonder what we could gain if we just sit with God and go, you made a promise to harvest is plentiful. I'm not seeing it. Will you reveal, is it a me thing? Or do I maybe need to adjust where I'm spending some of my time? Because I want to find that harvest. There is salvation to be had. Rejoice. What do you personally need to believe about God, about your life, in order 
to be glad and rejoice as you count your life as sacrifice unto the Lord and say yes to being a laborer. Guys, I don't want to do any of this without joy. I got to sacrifice my life and be depressed? <laughs> Dude, no. You do not. A lot of us grew up in churches where that felt like the call. It should just be really hard and you should feel pretty bad, but man, I promise you it's worth it. It's like Paul sang hymns in jail. Guys, if we went to jail, let's just watch that funny TikTok sketch right now in our head, how we would be acting in chains. We're like over here just like, you know, hallelujah. Like, no way. We'd be so pitiful in chains. Gosh, I'm not you. I'm me. I would be. You'd be great, you know. What does Paul know about Christ? What is he experiencing in his inner closet, in his personal dialogue with God, where he is no placebo effect, full of joy as he sacrifices his life. So maybe that's what God's gonna invite you into. No, I do wanna give you joy as you do all of this. Maybe there's something to explore there. Okay, love you. Let's process a little bit. However you wanna spend time with God, at the 11 a.m., we got the whole back of the room. If you wanna walk around, lay down, take a nap, you can go on a walk outside or you can sit here and journal or just close your eyes and ask the Lord, Lord, how are you wanting to speak to me out of this? What's my step here? but I do sense God has something for you. So I'm gonna give you like seven or eight minutes just to process on your own what God might be inviting you into. And then I'll come back up and I'll segue us into worship and then we'll get out of here. All right, love y'all.